Hello, my name is Dave Lewis, and I am the host of Cinemillennials, a podcast where myself and another millennial watch a classic film that we haven't seen before, ranging from the early 1900s to the late 1960s, and discuss its significance and relevance in our world today. On today's episode, I talked with an old school friend of mine, Mike Bardzalowski, who picked 1959's North by Northwest, starring Cary Grant and New Jersey's own Eva Marie Saint. While our generation generally knows Alfred Hitchcock's horror pictures like Psycho and The Birds, at this point in Hitchcock's career, he was known as the master of suspense from his intrigue-based melodramas and psychological thrillers, filled with heavy metaphors and themes. He was on one of the most prolific runs ever for a director in Hollywood. He made Dial M for Murder, Rear Window, To Catch a Thief, The Man Who Knew Too Much, his own remake, and Vertigo, all in seven years, ending in 1958. In 59, Hitchcock wanted to make a break from that kind of filmmaking, to make something fun and adventurous. He had an idea for a master spy mistaken identity story and always wanted to make a chase scene on top of Mount Rushmore. But he and writer Ernest Lehman needed to fill in the rest, and that's how North by Northwest was born. North by Northwest follows the story of Roger O. Thornhill, or Rot for short, a fast and loose-lipped ad man that accidentally ends up being kidnapped by a group of spies that think he's someone else. He luckily escapes their grasp, but not for too long, as he is soon set up for the murder of a UN official, leading to a life of dodging both US authorities and communist agents, until he runs into Eve Kendall, an elegant blonde that might have more to her than meets the eye. So sit back, relax, and duck! Hey Mike, welcome to the show. What year were you born? What was the first film you saw in theaters? And what are your favorite films at the moment? I'm born in 1993, so I'm 27. First film I saw in theaters was 101 Dalmatians. And favorite films right now, Kids is always a favorite for me. Always a Scorsese fan. I'll go with Goodfellas from him. As far as more recent stuff, I really enjoyed Parasite and Uncut Gems last year. I, I saw it. I mean, then again, like a lot of that kind of stuff isn't really for me. It's like not my kind of genre, not my kind of thing. But yeah. I felt that, you know, it's kind of funny that you brought up Parasite because I felt that Bong Joon-ho was trying to be too Hitchcockian. Where, so? Yeah, where he had this kind of idea of having a MacGuffin, that, that rock, you know, the rock that begins all of their misfortune afterwards. And I mean, eventually it was used in the whole party scene. And at that point, I was just like, what? This is so crazy. Like, it's so almost like, I mean, even with uh, even before that, with the uh, the whole guy and his bug eyes coming up the stairs, I was like, oh, yeah. my God, this is totally not my kind of movie. <laughs> we caught a bunch of around Oscar season last year. We caught a, a bunch of the films that were nominated that year in theaters. And that was one of them. And that was an interesting one to see. It was like a very tense crowd. Not as tense as I mean, Uncut Gems was, but it was... Uh... <laughs> Did you have any experiences with classic movies prior to watching North by Northwest? Not a ton. I had watched Godfather growing up. Uh, watched like some older James Bond movies, things like that. As far as Hitchcock goes, I saw a Psycho a very long time ago. My, that was my only experience with Hitchcock. So I kind of like went into it thinking that he was more of a, a horror guy. 
I mean, that's the same thing I had when I first started watching Hitchcock. I was so intimidated by it because anything to do with any type of horror related things, I'm the biggest scaredy cat in the world and I can't. <laughs> I overthink about them because I'm like, oh, what if it like turns me into this like crazy thing? It's just like the whole thing, like I was saying earlier, is like the whole thing from the community, the dean of that show is like looking at these like weird speaking about Dalmatians, these weird like Dalmatian type of things. And he's like, I hope this doesn't awaken anything in me. (laughs) (laughs) And that's like the same feeling I have within horror films. And actually like I just did another one recently where we were talking about this horror film and my guest made a good point where it's like, you have to challenge yourself with these types of things because otherwise you're never going to know what you're going to get out of them. And with our generation, the introduction to Hitchcock is Psycho. Normally, and, yeah. I mean, everybody knows the re 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 that whole yep. thing with the the shower scene. With that, since we always thought that that was a, what he did, what did you think about the humor in the film? There's so many great moments where he's just so funny throughout the whole movie. Yeah, I wasn't really expecting a lot of that, and especially with the way the film started too. I thought it was going to go in more of like a Twilight Zone type of direction when they, they kidnap him and they start calling him somebody else's name. And just I, w- I didn't really know where it was going at first. I wasn't expecting it to turn into the type of film that it was. But yeah, at first I was like t- totally ready for like a Twilight Zone type thing. <laughs> I mean, that's the whole thing that we were saying. It's just like that was his reputation for yeah. our generation's mind. And I wasn't expecting it either. And he just wanted to make this kind of fun, playful, adventurous story. And that's exactly what this movie is. It's a great adventure of mistaken identity and how this whole thing kind of just unravels. Did you know about the famous plane scene or the sequence on Mount Rushmore before that? Uh, No, I didn't. I, I, I have like vague memories of seeing, seeing Cary Grant, like running away with the plane, like right over his shoulder, like that whole, like, but I'd never watched the scene out of context or anything. Most people, it's interesting. I was talking to Tom, my brother, where he was like, I mean, you know that, obviously, yeah. uh, going to school with me. I asked him the same question. I was like, have you seen that before? Because he watched it with me. And he was like, no, I don't think so. But the funny thing is, I remember this specifically because, you know, as a kid, I, I liked all these movies and I was interested yeah. in them. And I actually hadn't seen North by Northwest before. But I remember because every year we went to Disney World. I made yeah. a point to go on the great movie ride. And if you go on that ride, at the end, they have the whole montage and everything uh, right after the whole Casablanca scene. And they have that scene in the whole montage. And I was like, that's where I remember it from. That's my first experience with North by Northwest. Okay. And I was just like, you know, people have seen these things before. They just don't know where it's from until they watch the movie itself or hear about people talking about that movie itself, you know? What drew you to pick North by Northwest? Just the familiar title. It was either that or Rebel Without a Cause. Mm-hmm. I knew a little, a little bit more about that when I knew James Dean was in it. But yeah, mostly just the title. I mean, it must must be of some significance if there's a a music festival that shares a uh, a name <laughs> with this somewhat. So yeah, it's 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 actually funny. Like you say that it is a exact reference to North by Northwest. Yeah. Because a lot of it is like within that South by Southwest, they have, you know, film screenings and stuff like that as well. And it's just so funny that that just happened to be one. And 
North by Northwest is actually not a real nautical or compass direction at all. It's just a nonsense type of thing. They made the reference to that in the movie when they're talking on the runway with the professor. And at one point, they were kind of figuring out what the title actually was going to be because that was just a working title for a while until Sky that actually made up the title was like, we're going to lose a lot on it because we're like advertising it as this name now. So we have to stick with it. Please, Mr. Hitchcock, please. I want my royalties. (laughs) But there are other titles like The Man in Lincoln's Nose. That's one of them. (laughs) The Man Who Sneezed in Lincoln's Nose and other ones. And then some people think it's uh, a reference to a line in Hamlet. It's kind of funny, like how this movie ends up and how Hitchcock had this idea for years that he wanted to have a chase scene on top of Mount Rushmore for some reason. And previously within one of his films, he has one of his villains falls off the Statue of Liberty. So there's something about (laughs) these massive monuments that Hitchcock loves. And I wonder now if that is a reference later on in the Planet of the Apes twist at the end. I'm not going to go into that until we actually cover that. Could be, but it looks like that theme has been done to death over the years. In your experience in watching these films, classic ones, was anybody really doing that too much before Hitchcock? I mean, I guess King Kong with the Empire State Building, but have there been a lot of films with scenes like that where it's just like action scenes taking place at a very famous place? Yeah, but it's like, especially with like more american kind of americana iconic locations i don't think so not from what i'm remembering uh yeah but no like a lot of the stuff is like that was a good reference to king kong for sure with the empire state building and there's actually like after that which came out i think in 1930 or 1933 i can't remember which but after that there are a lot of references maybe you're right yeah maybe it is a thing before but there was a specific kind of obsession that he had with these American icons and these American monuments that he has. And it's very applicable to what we're talking about in our society today and the different defense of monuments and things like that and people's different ideas. And even with that, it's because even back then, obviously, people wanted to protect certain things. And Hitchcock had to go to the extent of actually creating miniature Mount Rushmore because the people on Mount Rushmore were very protective of it and they were very strict about it. And famous character, uh, Roger Thornhill in this film, he just lied his head off to like get certain things done on the actual monument. And they started to like find out that he was breaking all these rules. So like, no, no, no. One of the rules was you can't have any violence on top of the monument at all (laughs) for whatever reason. What we see happens at the end. Right. So, it's funny how like he was able to bend these rules a little bit and get away with this stuff. And later on, they tried to change the rules about filming in certain specific places in the United States. Somebody actually wrote him a letter talking about, oh, you should start this whole thing with mistaken identity and how somebody just a regular Joe gets caught in this master spy ring and people think he's this master spy that's trying to hide things. So what did you think about that whole plot line in general? It was giving me like a Twilight Zone type of vibe at first. But then it's basically as soon as the action starts, it almost turns into like a James Bond-esque type of story where he's on the run and there's you have all these chase scenes and trains and on national monuments and there's a blonde love interest, like <laughs> Eva Marie Saint. Who's from Nork. Yeah, I found that out later on. I looked up her, her Wikipedia page. Hometown girl over here. <laughs> Crazy. Oldest living 
Oscar recipient? She won for On the Waterfront, which is, of course, set in Hoboken, New Jersey. Yeah. And uh, New Jersey's everywhere, people. It's not the armpit <laughs> of America like everybody says it is. It's not. That's right. <laughs> but it's funny that you brought up that point where it's basically a James Bond film because yeah. people often consider this movie to be the first James Bond film because of all the things that you just said. Yeah, it makes sense. It's, it very much creates a blueprint for it. Oh, yeah, for sure. I mean, you have the very suave, attractive guy. Well, depending on how you think he... Uh, <laughs> Cary Grant is. Of course. Uh, with, that, with that accent. What did you yeah. think of his accent, by the way? Of his accent? Yeah. I d- didn't pay much mind to it. Oh, really? Is he actually British or something? So he actually... It's funny. I have a story with him. He was originally born Archibald Leach. And he was out of Britain. Yeah, I know, right. <laughs> right. Archibald Leach is yeah. the great, like, you know, Cary Grant's actual name. Yeah. They were like, oh, no, you can't stick with the name Archie. Like, no yeah. way can you do that in Hollywood. And I think he left home at 13. So, you know, like the whole pirate voice, that whole stereotypical or archetypal pirate voice, like, ah, Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, Captain Jim. That's actually the very accent that comes from that area. So he had something similar to that. But at the time, there was something called transatlantic accents, right? Okay. So transatlantic accents were this kind of combination of British and American accents. So it's like an American accent with slight tinged British accents. Sounds um, awful. I'm so, yeah, right? <laughs> well, it's actually funny. Like, I used to do that. I don't know if you remember in like English class where I used to read like Shakespeare. That's course, the stuff that I would do. <laughs> of course. That's the thing I was famous for. I'm the coolest kid, obviously. <laughs> well, you've been true to yourself forever. So I'll give you that. <laughs> We've heard this constantly throughout our lives, especially within a whole bunch of millennial things. So it's still going on today where you hear some examples are uh, Mark Hamill when he plays the Joker, when he does the Joker's voice on the Batman animated series, you have, I mean, when you hear like Franklin Delano Roosevelt, um, all of those kind of older politicians, uh, you have Elizabeth Banks who did the the whole character Effie Trinket in Hunger Games. She does a transatlantic accent. You have like pretty much all of the, and Sydney's going to like it, all of the Disney villains either have an English or a transatlantic accent. Actually. Oh, like, the, okay. the yeah, Evil yeah. Queen has one, Maleficent, Cruella de Vil. So there's a lot of things like that. And that's what, you know, he was extremely known for. What were the characters that you really liked in this film? Roger Thornhill's mom was very entertaining. Oh, her, my God. <laughs> and her short stint in the beginning. I love that he's just like a 45-year-old a man and he only has to look after his mother. Yeah, yeah, divorced twice. Right from the get-go, you're in this movie. Like, the movie catches you with that whole scene of him coming out of the elevator with his secretary and just talking about, you know, the work things of the day. And after the first couple minutes where he's in this hotel, he's talking to these guys, two cronies get confused for him for this guy, Kaplan. And immediately, okay, where the hell is this movie going? And you're brilliant about that is switching it to that new idea of what's going on in this movie you're in the same seat as Roger Thornhill. Yeah, it's true. And it's it, it moves so fast. It almost makes you like overlook certain things. Like, why did they even think he was George Kaplan to begin with? What was it about him that they thought he was George Kaplan? Right. I thought the same thing. I was like, when I first watched the movie, I was like, wait, how did they? Yeah. I missed the part where they're like, so he's talking and he's like, oh, shoot, I forgot to tell my secretary this thing. Or I told her the wrong thing, he says. And he's like, boy, boy, he's trying to get the valet or the valet or whatever. Yeah. And they saw 
the boy said he's like Kaplan, Kaplan, anybody named Kaplan here? So he goes, oh boy. So they say, oh shoot, that's him. That's Kaplan. So that's why they take him. And that was only the second time I watched the movie that I picked that up. Yeah, there was that. And I was wondering about, with the plane scene, Mm -hmm. how Kendall knew to send him to Indianapolis, but she basically like almost sent him to his death. So the whole thing is, and let me ask about that first. What did you think? Did you think that she was a good character or a bad character when we first met her? Oh, I thought for sure that she was a trap. Oh yeah. It was just it just it just, just the way she conducted herself. I thought for sure that she was just trying to seduce him into letting his guard down and just to give him over to the those guys. Funny, I was watching it with my mom and she was like, "Oh no, she's definitely bad. She's definitely." I'm like, "I don't know." I kind of had this thing where it was like and this was even before where she starts to feel bad. But what she did was at that point, she was like, all right, let me try to get rid of this guy because I don't want him to blow my cover. Yeah. Two ways. So I have to get rid of this guy because he'll blow my cover and ruin the whole thing and I'll probably die. Yeah. And then I think I'm falling in love with him, which is, you know, the whole thing of the archetype of the Bond girl. Bond just like talks to a woman once and she just wants to be with him for the rest of her life. He would have made a convincing Bond too, Cary Grant. Oh God, yeah. yeah. I, I, th- I actually, I think he was considered. He did a lot of like acrobatic works and a lot of things within comedies. And that's kind of what he was known for at the time. And I think he would have been, you're exactly right. I mean, he has the whole, you know, the suit. He has the look. He has, look how cool he looked within wearing those sunglasses on the train and everything like that. He has the look and he definitely has the physicality of it too. Yeah, pulled it off magnificently. And even though he was just obviously in the context of the movie, just trying to figuring out how to survive as it was going, he wasn't aspiring or anything. He was just a random ad management type of guy. As if he was actually playing somebody that was supposed to know all these things. I could only imagine he would have excelled. This movie was was shot better than, than the early Bond movies, though, like uh, the early Connery ones and everything. With that, Hitchcock was super, super revolutionary yeah. in camera techniques. He yeah. is probably one of the most influential directors in camera techniques alone. He invented the Zolly, the Dolly. He invented so many different riggings that we've seen all throughout film history and that used from him today. Yeah. Um, he edited in camera. So that means the shot that he set up, that's what he wanted to see in the film. He never went to see his films. Really? Yeah. Like, he knew what he was doing <laughs> he from, right like. from the get-go. He didn't even need to hear the music. The music for him was such a big part of it as well. Yeah. I mean, obviously going to Psycho with the whole, you know, the whole thing. Yeah. And then and, and this one as well. Yeah, what did you think about the music? I was going to ask you that since, like, you're one of the biggest music heads that I know. What did you think about that? The music was good. I know he, he worked with the guy that he worked with on Psycho, but I thought what was more interesting was where he chose not to use music. Just basically the entire plane scene up until oh, the very right. end. There's absolutely no music there. It just really lent itself well to that, to creating the suspense there. That was just 10 minutes of pure anxiety right there. I didn't even know that. And you definitely see that in films today, right? I mean, the whole yeah. kind of point of having that silence because Hitchcock was so brilliant with getting Bernard Herrmann. Yes, for sure. He was Hans Zimmer before Hans Zimmer was a thing. He was this massively influential and really experimental composer at the time. And 
because of because of Hitchcock's affinity for him, he developed so many different iconic things. I think he introduced the theremin and did a whole bunch of other things like that. But with his stuff, I didn't even notice that because, I mean, you look at filmmaking today and the things that come to mind, and I, I really, really have to stop referencing Christopher Nolan. I really have to stop. I Listen, I love Christopher Nolan's movies. Okay. What he does is he takes so much from classic film he's definitely and, a student of it oh for sure because i mean he produces a lot of stuff like martin scorsese he tries to preserve film and he wants to make sure i mean which is why he released tenant when he did um which isn't doing too great but um no it, apparently not because now they're trying to go the way of netflix where they're not going to release the box office Really? And usually when they do that, that's not a good sign. But it, I mean, to be fair, though, like who I'm a big movie fan and I love going to the theater and that's like one of my favorite things to do. But I don't see myself going to a movie anytime soon. I just had that conversation today. It have to be something I'd be very excited about for, for me yeah. to want to go risk it to go into a theater because the theaters are just opening in Orange County right now. Oh, yeah, that's right. Like, just over the even... weekend. Right, and we we had over here, we had some things open up. And I know, I know Lyndon, I got an email because I'm like a member of there or whatever for AMC. They opened up. Cranford Theater is doing, which is like my favorite local art house theater. Yeah. They have been doing for pretty much the whole summer drive-in stuff. But now you Same can like- Same thing with my, like, we got the Frida over in Santa Ana. Oh, They've been doing pop-ups all summer. They got the Toxic Avenger coming up on Tuesday. <laughs> I I saw the Goonies with them at the beginning of the summer at a mm-hmm. pop-up over in Newport. That's been a great site because I'd never been to a drive-thru before. Which is funny because New Jersey had some of the most, I don't know, I think they had at some point had the most drive-in theaters at a time. And I have never been to one either. And I still haven't gone because there's nothing that I really was like crazy about. But if they have like Lawrence of Arabia or anything like that, I'm like, hell yes, I'm doing that. But yeah. with them, now you can go there. They're just opening up where it's like 350 for 20 people of your choosing and you get to pick a movie. So it's wow. like a whole private screening. So I was like, you know what? Maybe if this lasts until 2021 for the 20th anniversary of Lord of the Rings, I might just get a bunch of people to watch it in theaters. Jesus, to... it's the 20th anniversary that is coming up? I know, right? Isn't that freaking crazy? Wow. <laughs> that is crazy. I guess we were probably like in fifth grade when the third one came out. Yeah, I think so. Yeah. When I dressed up as Legolas and everybody made fun of me. You were in that for two years. That was not a cheap costume. That's fourth and fifth grade, right? No, I think maybe it was because I also did did the Ring Wraith and I did Legolas, but also I used the Legolas costume, which is where you might be getting that idea from, for that whole famous people throughout history project that we had to do for Miss Ulrich's class. Okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I used that for Johannes Gutenberg's costume. (laughs) With this movie, it's just like a lot of people consider it to be one of the greatest films of all time. Actually, let me go back to the whole thing with Christopher Nolan. What happened was with that, like you can notice that in his films when you notice that in Dunkirk, where that whole scene where he's on the beach, the main character, he's on the beach and you don't hear anything at all. And then in the background, you just hear plane engine eventually coming towards him which is like actually probably a reference to north by northwest probably yeah. uh, here all these tense moments where it's just like silence and actually another great example speaking about martin scorsese one of the best movies that i saw in the last i don't know 10 15 years was silence that he directed and he's been wanting to direct for years and throughout that movie i'm pretty sure there's almost no music 
there's almost no music because of how intense the film is, how intense uh, themes and the ideologies that are putting across on film. It's the whole thing between Catholic priests that want to rescue their their mentor and their teacher who is played by Liam Neeson to bring him back to the faith because they heard that he apostatized, which means giving up the faith and he's starting to live as a Japanese person instead. And throughout the film, like all you hear is crickets. All you hear is what is happening around you because you don't need those parts of music because it already is tense. But on the other hand, what Hitchcock and Bernard Herrmann do is that they are able to manipulate their audience Yeah, because they're able to use that music. And they're really, you know, I'm not perfectly expert or anything about that, like within film music and film music history. But I think with their stuff is they're able to use that and capture the feeling of anxiety and emotion that you're almost on the edge of your seat the whole time through that music. Yeah. I wish I could have been coming of age when all these movies were coming out. Cause I'm, I can't even imagine how it sounded to people that were watching them for the first time, you know, where, cause we're, we're watching it after ingesting almost like three decades worth of culture where right. they've, they've already influenced all these things. I wish I could have heard it with like virgin ears. Right. Yeah. That's the same thing. Like uh, that's what we've talked about before on the show where it's like, we are, I mean, yes, while we're watching these films for the very first time, we're experiencing these things for the very first time. And I guess this is like the tag for the show, as I keep saying that too. It's like Nolan and this tag, where it is, we stand on the shoulders of giants. Yeah. And every single famous person that you've ever heard of, or every single famous director or famous movie, takes from somebody that came before them. Yeah, nothing's original. Exactly. With Hitchcock, uh, he was massively inspired by German Expressionism with various different films from that, like what I was telling you before, The Cabinet of Dr. Caligari, Metropolis. He was, from the very get-go, he was using a lot of the ideas that these guys made in the 20s and even in the 10s that he was taking those things. And let me let me just tweak this thing a little bit. Let me like you know put some little type of interesting point here to change it on its head a little bit to use the things that he's learned in the past because like I said before he introduced the very first talking picture in England he introduced all of these other different camera techniques he has this obsession almost like you know how Quentin Tarantino has obsession with feet right yeah, he yeah. Has... <laughs> I don't I had really no idea about that. that until once upon a time in Hollywood by oh the way. my god yeah and I was yeah. like wow this is this goes deep this is <laughs> talking about uh people that take from uh the past completely and try to market it as their own thing yeah um yeah i'm uh, this is gonna be controversial but i'm not a fan of quentin tarantino not at all no i i I watched i saw inglorious bastards uh in theaters when it first came out and i was just like because i'm not like a crazy i think the whole i think he's too heavy-handed with a lot of his stuff especially with the violence like i think yeah violence to a point is fine but when you're constantly like, you know, using it and not trying to make a point with it, it just like, like, it, it's like, are you a 12 year old boy? Like, I understand yeah, where like fair a lot criticism of, for sure. Right. It's, it, it's, it, it just, it doesn't seem, and like people say, oh, he's a great film director. He's an auteur or whatever. But I think that a lot of the stuff that he just uses takes up stuff. And then so the thing that I was trying to say was Hitchcock has this obsession with blondes. 
when you yeah. look at the majority of his films, he has an obsession with blonde women, and a lot of his things are dealing with the connection between sexuality and death, sex and death. And with this film, you don't really see that. But at the end of the film, he does still give a nod to his obsession with that. Uh, when the you t- look the at the tunnel going into the, yeah. the train going into hell, yeah. <laughs> He did that very specifically. He was like, yeah, that was just me being impudent and, you know, yeah. childish. <laughs> now, Mike, after Hitchcock came out with Vertigo, which is full of a lot of really heavy, interesting themes and topics, like I said before, Hitchcock really wanted to make a fun idea and make something that's more popularized and more contemporary accessible for sure and the whole idea of moral relativism and the whole thing with the cold war era like part of it i feel like he was still trying to say because there was a whole thing where there is a scene right before the end of the film right before the very famous mount rushmore scene where the professor is saying like you got to go like when he reveals that hey she's not gonna go with you like she's going with the bad guy she's going with van damme Cary grant's character thornhill was like maybe you guys should lose a couple cold wars if you're gonna keep treating women like this and i thought that was like i was like wow really that's that was kind of like a very contemporary and thing that we could you know hear in films today and i was kind of taken back by that what did you think about that line funny you mentioned that because i thought it was he was talking pretty crazy about women earlier uh, when they were when they were at the auction, I was like, "Wow, they re- you're really able to just like talk about a woman like this in front of her back then, huh?" But yeah, it, it comes it definitely comes full circle there. Yeah, he's just like, and exactly what we were just talking about, where we were saying that he didn't have very good relationships with these female actresses. I mean, the whole very famous story of Tippi Hedren, who did the whole Birds, she was the star in the Birds, where she felt that she was constantly being tortured and manipulated and emotionally abused on that set. And I don't think Marie Sane had any issues with him, but there are a lot of constant things throughout his, I mean, there's a whole movie about it. There's a whole HBO movie about how he was just kind of this crazy controlling director that also just so happens to be a genius. It's like that whole thing where you have the idea of the whole insanity borders on genius right and it is that kind of thing and i think it's interesting how he did talk about that and he was just like maybe the u.s should lose a couple things because the way that you're doing a lot of stuff is going on i mean his whole thing was like yeah i don't want to really go into these types of things and he even says it's like it's a fantasy the whole film is epitomized in the title there's no such thing as north by northwest on the compass and even though it is a fantasy, some people can take things from it, and that's with any movie. But I think with this movie, while it does have that kind of like little hint, besides that line, it, it pretty much is just something that's completely for the general audience. Absolutely, yeah. There's definitely – I didn't see a, a ton of symbolism there, but that, that moment you talk about does sound like potentially a bit of self-awareness from Hitchcock. Maybe he realized what, he, like what a tyrant he was being toward women. Do you think, I mean, it's, it's kind of almost like a trope at this point that you have to be like some sort of tyrannical madman to be a, a director. You think there's any credence to that? I mean, now I think, I think it, it, it does stem from people like Hitchcock and things before him, because a lot of things like, I mean, you know, the whole type of predatory type of thing within Hollywood went on forever. I mean, yeah, even in the twenties and thirties, these things happened. 
and some even happen to like the biggest stars in the world and still people that are beloved like i mean kirk douglas had a whole thing with uh, natalie wood who unfortunately had that whole accident with the boat and everything like that. She she was supposed to meet him. I think it might have been, but she was supposed to audition for him. And he was, you know, the whole casting couch type of situation. And she ran out of the hotel bloodied and it wasn't a good story. And there's a lot of people that some people thought this one woman uh, who actually pressed charges against her abuser while he wasn't a director, he was a, an executive and apparently people thought that she was killed because of it. It's always been in Hollywood, unfortunately, that that's a thing. But now it, it is good that people are finally saying something about it, that it's not okay and it's not something that needs to happen, something that shouldn't happen, frankly. Absolutely. I'm so tired of people whining about cancel culture and things like that. Too. It's like, this is really what you're speaking up against, like people being treated fairly. Mm-hmm. You know? Yeah, because it's like, I mean, people forever i mean there's been whole things with history where it has been i mean like i said before even in the 30s you have plenty of examples where people are like saying like i mean even as kids we were exposed to that right like when you look at things like looney tunes and how they have all the different celebrities making different references to different people because they were so on the nose with so much stuff during that time period there are a lot of people that just don't understand how filmmaking is an art and how it is basically, you know, with any art, there is going to be some kind of political message or political thing involved, whether people want to say it's true or not, because there are a lot of people that just say, oh, yeah, my movies are just for these people, but they never, you know, come out with saying specifically and explicitly that conviction or this is some kind of idea against this thing that i'm riling against yeah it's probably better to leave it vague and let people interpret it on their own a lot of the time exactly and i feel like a lot of especially with hitchcock films he does kind of do that too and with a lot of these things uh, and that's an that's another great point that he actually takes from silent films because a lot of silent films did that for you have cabinet of dr caligari having in 1920 was the first film that had an ambiguous ending and it was whether or not the reality of the whole thing is was what happened in the film actually real because it's a whole mental patient type of idea that you don't know until the end that it's it's um another great thing that we're talking about scorsese he actually probably got a lot of the inspiration for Shutter Island from the cabinet of Dr. Caligari. Did you notice a lot of the things in this film was that there were a lot of miniatures and there was also a lot of map paintings for different scenes. Did you notice these things? Not at all. Really? That's, that's yeah. cool. Uh, so a great trick and actually another great trick that was taken from the past and put into the future. Now with what we were talking about earlier was Lord of the Rings. They, took this idea of using miniatures but they called them bigatures so they made the they made them these massive things like think of helms deep and all this stuff they use these miniatures to make sure that these things seem massive and from our perspective and use a bunch of different perspective techniques to make it seem like it was a real thing so when you look at thornhill is leaving the united nations what we see now as could be a drone shot they didn't have drones back then they right. weren't gonna they weren't going to have this massive camera rig as if you're on top of the United Nations headquarters, right? Yeah. So 
and this happens with a lot of famous movies, is that they use these things called matte paintings. So they're all paintings. So they're either in the background or in the foreground where you're seeing something that's a massive thing. And it actually is like not a set at all. It's just this painting, this large painting that shows that, hey, this is like a, a big part of the set, but they either didn't have enough money or it's just a perspective thing too when we were talking about ingenuity before. So we're talking about but, like yeah. almost like the, almost like the scenario where you have like uh, in Looney Tunes where they paint like uh, like a, a road going into like yeah. the side of a cliff and like the roadrunner just like runs into it. Almost like that, but for like an actual, wow. Yeah, like the, so for that, that's definitely one of them. That's the one that I can think of immediately. But there's also when he walks into the UN as well, there is uh, the matte painting in the background where you have like the the small people like walking and walking in and out of the building. And then you have things like the crop duster goes into the truck. That is a miniature. It's a, it's a real quick cut where you can see because they obviously I mean, they're not Christopher Christopher Nolan now in Tenet where he's like, yeah, I blew up a 747 because I could. Yeah. Um, <laughs> They took these miniatures, and at that time, miniatures were like train tracks, were trucks, were planes, you know, that whole model kit kind of thing. At the time, was a very big hobby and passion for a lot of people, and they just decided, hey, let's make it into a thing so we don't have to blow up actual things that we want to blow up in real life. But that was a miniature. And actually, it's funny. I think this might be the first film, talking about that scene, where somebody is walking away from an exploding thing in the background. Possibly. I believe it. I'm sure that was a, a dangerous thing to even try to touch beforehand. Oh yeah, he's not looking cool. Like, he's trying to protect himself, which is way more accurate than things are now, where they're just, like, walking towards the camera away from the yeah. explosion. All stone-faced, because that would have never happened in real no. life. A lot of different tricks that he does, like perspective tricks. And another thing with the, the map paintings is, one of the most famous things is in Star Wars. There's so many different ones in Star Wars. When you watch Return of the Jedi, where they have the Emperor is coming, majority of those stormtroopers aren't real. They're paintings. Wow. It's something uh, interesting to look back on. Yeah, right? It's the magic of movie making. Yeah. Uh, especially because, you know, they don't want to pay more extras. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but, yeah, no, it's, it's, it's something that within film there's a whole theme about, you know, Let's work around the finance. Let's work around paying people and end up being one of the best parts about the movie or one of the most in things that you never notice. And the other thing that I was going to ask you about the, the, the special effects wise was when he's in the car, when he's driving drunk, what did you think of that? Did that feel like outdated to you? Did that feel realistic of what he was doing and what we were seeing on the screen? Uh, that was actually hilarious. I, I kind of forgot about that part of the movie. I, was, <laughs> I, was, I really, I really enjoyed it as it was happening. And I, like by the end of it, I totally forgot it happened. It's, it's a pretty long <laughs> runtime for by contemporary standards. Looking at it, it was like a, like a little over two hours, right? It was two seventeen. Yeah, I can't speak to too much of the accuracy. I've never driven hammered, but <laughs> <laughs> no, it was good. I, I liked it. It was got, like got, got the <laughs> got the double vision going and everything. It was, and he still got a wet. He actually actually gave it a good go. He, <laughs> he got away from the <laughs> Yeah, I mean, like, and it's funny because that, like, now we watch movies where people are in camera and you're able to watch the road and stuff like that. But back then, that was a projection behind them. You know, when when we're watching them and they're when Cary Grant's like making all these like drunk faces and like trying yeah. to open his eyes as, as, as much as he can, the background, we see the cars behind them and 
that was just another camera trick. What they did was, and at the time was people thought it was pretty accurate and real, that you would have a projection behind the actor. So the camera's looking at you as the actor and you're driving the car. But behind you, there's nothing there. Like, you know, there's just a projector projecting that image and projecting the car. So you have to go in. Really? You have to, yeah, you have, to, you have to film the car from another car, like having right. it move or from a dolly or something. Like I a figured rig- for sure they would have had, like, green screen by then. Because you see it a lot. It's, 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 like, very obvious in, like, old Bond movies and things like that when people are in a car. And it's, like, you're obviously not driving right now. Right. Yeah, so exactly. I, I, I figured that was all green screen. I didn't know they actually had a projector. No, going. yeah, yeah. It's all projections and it's all camera tricks because they didn't have that stuff back then. I think really what was one of the big things about Star Wars was that blue screen and blue screen was the really kind of first thing for that kind of special effects. Before that, you had for those types of miniatures and those types of for different creatures like the Tauntaun and stuff like that. They were really stop motion animation characters. They weren't. Yeah. There, there wasn't anything like that, so they came up with blue screen in order to get the background, like, for the spaceships to actually look like it's in space. And for that stuff, and with the same thing with the miniatures, like I was saying before, is the whole trench run and all that other stuff, obviously, you know, we can't go up in space like that, driving those things around. But it's all miniatures, and it's all within the camera. With this movie, he was able to use a lot of different special effects that really are believable especially for that time yeah i love the ingenuity just hearing that type of ingenuity i heard that uh for psycho for the uh the blood in the shower scene since it was shot in black and white he actually used chocolate syrup yeah to to mimic the blood i love i I love hearing stuff like that it's so good and and they i mean he totally could have made that film a color film but he just is like no because it, it it adds to that atmosphere of having it in black and white and I mean, that's what uh, something that he definitely learned from the past watching films that were really all black. Well, that were, of course, black and white because color film wasn't a thing back then. But in the 20s and 10s and 30s, he took all of these ideas because when you look at different films that were from the 20s with German expressionism, he takes that dread and he takes that horror element to it and is able to bring it to a level even higher than those things were able to get because they didn't have the capabilities one thing i was kind of interested in was that tom you know tom my brother and stuff he talked about how how leonard was like oh yeah he's definitely not a bad guy (laughs) like being completely sarcastic about him and saying like oh yeah he's definitely not one of the bad guys that's for sure (laughs) like yeah that guy's a yeah like probably typecast as a bad guy for his entire career oh my god yeah how could it be anything else it's interesting because all of the like quote-unquote like monsters or bad guys that you see because i've done a couple of those now they are almost always these actors that have these massive eyes (laughs) and i wonder why that is like what makes it because what makes people uncomfortable with men having wide set eyes and like these large eyes whereas with women these women that have big eyes, and that's a trait to be seen as an attractive trait. Yeah, you know? very, very considered very desirable. Yeah, I never even really thought about that. I want to see who this guy played in other other movies now. <laughs> yeah, right. Um, were there things that you noticed about watching this film that you noticed that is still in use today? Using a national landmark to have like such like a a prominent action scene. It's, it seems like it's 
everywhere in movies now in much less subtle ways probably but you definitely see a lot of that like like we were talking about the influence with on the the james bond series i mean that's you're looking at that movie probably has influenced decades worth of action for Mm -hmm. america and which is probably on the back of north by northwest action movies probably became one of the biggest genres in america for decades to come even though it's not specific, like specifically an action movie it's more of a thriller but it's mm-hmm. it, that just a lot of what he used there became just everywhere right and it's funny you say that too because the helicopter scene in from russia with love that scene is actually directly taken from plane scene in this movie in this movie <laughs> Wow, they cribbed it like not even ten years later or something like that. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> right, exactly. Not even ten years later. Like yeah. they were like, yeah, we're just gonna take this. It, it was pretty cool. <laughs> Back then, how did people even watch films for a second time? Would you have to go to a movie theater to do it? Because I know people didn't have like VCRs in their house. Right. Had to, like, well, it's had to like buy a whole reel of the, yeah. of the film. So the thing was back then the movies were kind of like you pretty much could stay there all day with just okay. one ticket if you wanted to. So like you go to a ticket and of course they're like friggin' 25 cents, which I wish. So you would be able to stay in the theater for however long you wanted, really. You could watch it multiple times. And even with that, with home type of situations, people would buy projectors and you would have to go to certain film distributors and ask for the films. Um, That's how I think it is anyway. But like one of our family friends actually has a lot of films from and shorts really from the 1910s, the 1920s, 1930s. And he has his own projector that you can watch all this stuff on eight millimeter film, 16 millimeter film and so on and so forth. And that's really how people enjoyed films at home if they could. I can't even imagine trying to get into film at that time because obviously you're going to you could go to the spend the entire day at the movie theater. Mm -hmm. But like for our parents who grew up before the VCR, everything you know is basically like what just came out and hopefully you remember mm-hmm. like what you watch like a month later. Yeah, exactly. Like I remember there was somebody on Twitter where their grandmother or their great grandmother, like it was around the forties. She had a whole diary of every single movie that she saw in the theaters and people saw like there were due to the studio system at the time, um, which really didn't break until the sixties. Um, and actually, Cary Grant, speaking about that whole thing, Cary Grant was the first actor that really negotiated his own contract. Not, well, not maybe not negotiated his own contract, but stepped away from the studio system in a way. So where, where, where people only work with like Universal or things like that? Yeah, so you had contracts to work for Universal, MGM, and all the other ones, uh, RKO, yeah. all the different other ones. But so they basically like, you know, they owned you pretty much like you would be doing from uh movies you'd be doing like five different movies in one day going from five in the morning to like three at night or something like that crazy crazy hours they would give you and this is like also one of the reasons why famous people and especially in, in the 40s 50s and 60s had these crazy lives and that they were you know i mean at the time they were covering up a lot of things and drugs alcohol like all this other stuff um homosexuality abortions and everything um because they wanted to make it polished and these people to be role models for a certain degree or to a certain degree and um there was a lot of that there was a lot of that because these actors had to stay up all night and the studios were giving them drugs 
to stay up all night. So <laughs> like they were, and stuff. Yeah. yeah, they were giving them. Yeah, they were giving them stuff like that to keep them awake at night or to keep them awake throughout the day because running from lot to lot, going to different studios, trying to make five different movies all at the same time. So they're like, all right, you got to stay awake. You got to keep keep going. It was very kind of like. I, I mean, I saw some people say that it's almost on, verging on slavery, like where people thought these people were just very glamorous and very, you know, glorious. And look at all these people and how rich. No glamour in that. They were being ran ragged. People think that this film is one of the greatest films or if not the greatest film of all time. Do you think that's justified? If you're looking at it purely as somebody like I, I talked about before about like us, like ingesting everything that we've ingested culturally, like over the years, like, is it? as convincing as something similar that could have came out like in the last 10 years. Mm-hmm. Not exactly, but like on, off influence alone, you got to give the credit where it's due. I absolutely enjoyed it. And I mean, the, obviously the plane scene, that's just, that was just incredible. Why do you think millennials and the younger generations should watch North by Northwest? I come back to it with music all the time. You should really develop an understanding of how, what you're consuming now and what's coming out now relates to things from the past whether that's through uh, for me it's always you know listening to like older rap music older punk music things like that understanding like how we got to this current moment and for that alone i think it's always a valuable lesson to go back and watch the classics and i think i'll be doing more of that now with films because of doing this project with you i really hope you enjoyed the discussion i had with mike about north by northwest i just want to say thank you to mike for being a great friend for coming on the show and for bringing up a lot of great memories for a more relaxed discussion this episode if you enjoyed this episode of Cinemillennials and want to watch the film we discussed, please check out my website, dlumoviereview.com, for more episodes of the podcast, film reviews, analyses, and where to purchase the film we discussed today. Please don't forget to subscribe, leave a review, and give us a rating, as it helps more people find the podcast. Thank you.